Well, good morning. Today is the fifth Sunday of Epiphany, so let's dive in and discover the ways that God manifests and reveals himself to the world. In our Old Testament reading this morning, we find that Judah was being disciplined because the people of Yahweh did not listen to the words of God and did not act in accordance to what was written. King Josiah was a reformer, and this reform movement in Israel began as a routine job in the temple where the high priest stumbled upon something that had been concealed for a long time. We don't know exactly how long that was, but we know that there was some distance in time. So this is the book of God's revelation. Now, just a reminder, we find ourselves in Epiphany, and this is a time in the church year that we talk about the ways that God manifests and reveals himself. Now, I hope you're making this connection here with why the church has chosen this uh, reading from the Old Testament, and I hopefully, as we go through the rest of the text, you'll see that as well. So when God's revelation was dusted off and read, well, first of all, it was discovered, dusted off and read, that's when reform started. Reform didn't start with fiery language or moral imperatives that were thrown at the people, whether by a political or prophetic figure. It started with the revelation of Almighty God. At the time it was read, the moral and spiritual climate of Israel was a mess, Now, that's interesting because that sounds like the United States of America in 2020. Now, one of the reasons it was a mess then is the same reason things are such a mess now. Things are as bad as they are because of concealment, which is the opposite of manifestation and revelation. Now, the reform of King Josiah's time was rooted in the rediscovery of the Holy Scriptures. Deuteronomy was the book that was rediscovered. And the excitement was that the Word of God, as ancient as it was, had words that could bring life, change, and transformation, resurrection to the most lifeless and dead circumstances. If some areas of our life are dead, like our spiritual life, maybe a friendship, our marriage, a passion, A rediscovery of the Word of God will certainly help. Why? Because the Holy Spirit speaks through His Word and it brings us into the presence of Almighty God. And when we submit ourselves to Him and obey what He reveals, He will transform our lives into His image for His purposes. So read and obey the Word. May we reacquaint ourselves with this ancient and relevant text, God's revelation. Then wait and watch and see what comes to life. This brings us to our psalm this morning. So much is going on in our psalm and I would like to talk about. But I am drawn to verse 4. The psalmist says this, I'm asking God for one thing. One thing? Well, as I reflected on that, I've asked God for a hundred things this week and multiples of thousands in my lifetime, and I can't begin to tell you all the things that I've asked for. One thing, says the psalmist. One thing I do, says Paul in Philippians 3. You lack one thing, says Jesus to Martha in Luke 10. 
I know one thing, says the blind man whom Jesus had healed in John chapter 9. These declarations about one thing vary. But all recognize that there are moments when we have to focus. In Western culture, we have gotten used to multitasking. Now, that's for most people. It's not true of me. But nonetheless, and it's, it's become the case, was partly out of necessity and partly out of choice. We think that we can keep adding one more thing to our schedules without asking what we are going to abandon to create the room. And we aren't very good at standing back and asking what is priority. One thing. This echoes in my ears. One thing I asked for. My petitions have ranged from the most simple to the most serious. They have including fleeting whims to full-fledged commitments. But they have been many, not just one. They tumble endlessly within me. Then I come to this verse in Psalm 27. I scratch my head. Where I find a person who has discovered what is essential. A person that not only discovers what is essential, but he sticks to it. One thing. How do we account for the singleness of mind that's expressed here in this psalm? Simply this, here is a person who's discovered the immensity, the attractiveness, the beauty, and the accessibility of Almighty God. And he desires one thing, but that one thing is expressed in three verbs. To live, to contemplate, and to study. It's one thing, but it's experienced in three dimensions. In the house of the Lord, in the beauty of the Lord, and at the feet of the Lord. This single desire that absorbs all other desires is to be where God is, to see what He reveals and to learn what He teaches, and then to obey it. The trouble the psalmist faced didn't drive him into trying everything in hopes that something might turn up that worked. His troubles drove him to one thing, and that is God. The one thing is to dwell in Yahweh's house. Now this hardly means living in the temple. The expression is an image for living in Yahweh's presence and being under Yahweh's protection, being under King Jesus, King God, King Holy Spirit, the triune God. It makes everything else but the one thing fall away. Now let's look at our second reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If someone were to ask Paul to give the gospel of Jesus Christ in two or three words, there would be no question about his response. It wouldn't be God is love or love your neighbor or keep the commandments, though hopefully all of us here this morning know how true these are, how vital and how necessary, how foundational they are to each one of us as Christ followers. But it would be as verse 2 tells us that Jesus is crucified. The phrase is not a reduction, but it's a concentration. It's not a blurring of reality, but a focusing. It's not a watering down, but it's getting to the central core. Jesus' crucifixion affects us every day of our lives. As we talk about often that it's the very essence of what 
our baptism means, that Jesus died and that Jesus rose again. It's the very essence of our discipleship every day when we wake up and we focus on this one thing, realizing that we live a cruciform life. God's way of being among us is to get down on our level, to enter the humiliation and the death, to share the persecution and the pain, to get into our skin and go through these things with us. This is what incarnation is all about. It's impossible to take the truth of the the gospel and divorce it from the way of the gospel. We're not allowed to pick and choose among the great truths of the Bible and make up a private collection of comfortable sayings. Jesus is the way and he is the truth. And the way is crucifixion. Suffering and death are part of that reality. Paul wants the messy Corinthian Christians to see that though the message about the crucified Jesus is indeed a foolish and scandalous thing in the eyes of the world, but at the heart of the Christian message, the gospel, this is the meaning of the deepest mystery of life. And Paul makes it clear That he did not use normal rhetorical tricks of the trade and, uh, if I can get it out, persuasive words is what I'm trying to say. We'll see that's precisely why he didn't, maybe, because he got tongue-tied as well. And he didn't use just human wisdom. You know, very interesting that I was asked to go speak at a diocesan event and speaking to um, our deacons and to talk about homiletics, talk about preaching, I I began to wonder whether they were just desperate and they um, ran out of options and they asked me. But in, in some of the books that about preaching, it talks and focuses so much about using you know, good oratory skills and learning how not to use you know, like um, um, verbal pauses like um or okay and, and uh, you know, things like that. You know? So there's, such, there's an emphasis. Now, I, I will say some of the books that we're using talk equally about how important it is, the power of the gospel itself, but it still talks a lot about human wisdom and persuasive words and things like that. But it's interesting that Paul says that the truth of the gospel carried its own power, and Paul was happy to keep it that way, even though he looked like a fool while he was announcing it. Remember the words of of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Now, I'm going to be reading it from the message. If you don't like the message, then open up the ESV and read it in that. But it says this, If you only look at us, you might well miss the brightness. We carry this precious message around in unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. In other, in other words, our lives were like clay jars, earthen vessels. But inside of us, there is God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where the power is. If we want to know the kind of people that God calls, I would encourage you to look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-31. through 31, And those are the verses that preceded our reading this morning. And if we want to know how God, our Paul delivered this gospel, it's in chapter 2 in the words that we read this morning. But I'd like to look at verses 4 and 5. It says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. 
So if we want to experience the manifestation or the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, it comes not on our human abilities and reasoning, but through trusting in God's power and declaring Christ crucified, Christ risen, and Christ coming again. And now we turn to our third reading from the Gospel of Matthew. As probably the majority of us know, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 um, is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And chapters 5, verses 1 through 12, the preceding verses to what we read this morning, is what we call the Beatitudes. Now, Jesus was starting a revolution, and that's for sure. But really, all he was living and sharing was the fulfillment of all that Israel had believed and longed for. And he was also showing them that he and his followers really were living by and also dying by the new way that he was announcing. What he was announcing. It really wasn't a new message per se. This was the ongoing revelation of God's salvation history from, the, from start to finish. So it was a continuing message and everyone that pre, everything that preceded Jesus pointed to this very moment. He was fulfilling everything that preceded. He came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. Do to others, he says, what you would like them to do to you, because this is what the law and the prophets are really all about. And at the end of chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, it concludes with sharp warnings about the urgent need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. So we're talking about discovering or rediscovering the God's revelation, um, God's word, and how important that is. Now, remember that. Remember what the one thing is, being in God's presence. And talking here again about being warned about hearing God's word but not doing anything about it. Our, our present passage then is a kind of gateway to all um, that will follow. And its theme is very clear. That Jesus is calling the Israel of his day to be Israel indeed. Be the people of God now that he is there. What he says here and now can be applied to all of us, all Christians. But its original meaning was to challenge Jesus' own contemporaries. But certainly it applies very much to today as well. God had called Israel to be the salt of the earth. But Israel was behaving like everybody else. With its power politics. Hmm. Interesting. With its factional squabbles. Contemporary issues? I'm talking about the text. I'm just... With its militant revolutions? Now don't be fooled and think I'm talking about one individual here. Because you had completely missed the point. I'm talking about both sides of the aisle. It's easy to identify the sins of one individual, and they are certainly easy to identify. But we would be wise and not fools to see the sins of all, especially in us, and pray. God called America to be better than this, and God certainly called Christians to act better than this. I'm not mad. I'm just speaking in love the truth. God called Israel to be the light of the world, manifesting and revealing the light of God for all to see. We see that through the biblical narrative. 
Isaiah 42 and 49 talks about this. Israel was the people through whom God intended to shine his bright light into the the world's dark corners. Not simply to show up evil, but to enable people who were blundering around in the dark to find their way. Do we know anybody like that? Are our neighbors and co-workers fumbling around? Any family members or church members? Confused, numb, hurting, broken, dark? But what if the people that God called to be light bearers had become part of that darkness? That was Jesus' warning and also his challenge. Jerusalem, this city set on a hill, was supposed to be a beacon of hope for the entire world. And his followers were to be like that. Their deep, heartfelt keeping of God's ways would be a sign to the nations that the one God, the creator, the God of Israel was God indeed and that they should worship him. This was truly revolutionary and at the same time deeply in tune with the ancient stories and promises of the Bible. And the remarkable thing is that Jesus brought it all into reality in his own person. He was the salt of the earth. He was the light of the world, set up on a hilltop, crucified for all the world to see, become a beacon of hope and new life for everyone, drawing people to worship his Father, embodying the way of self-giving love, which is the deepest fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's why these sayings originally applied to Israel now apply to all of those who follow Jesus and draw on his life as the source of their very own. So how does this challenge affect us today? Where does the world need salt and light right now? And how can we, through following Jesus, provide it? As we come to receive Holy Communion today, like we often do, we come with hands wide open to receive. We don't take, we receive Holy Communion. But come with hands open, lifting up our hearts, our concerns, our loved ones, those who are confused, those who are numb, those who are broken, those who are experiencing darkness. Lifting up the United States of America. Lifting up all saints. Lifting up ones who are grieving. Ones recovering. All to Almighty God. And receive His life. Receive His presence. Receive His food. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.